Welcome to the Agent of Influence podcast with Nabil Hanan. I'm your host, Nabil Hanan, Managing Director at NetSpy. This is a podcast sponsored by NetSpy as a place to share best practices and trends in the world of cybersecurity and vulnerability management. Portions of this interview will appear in print on the NetSpy executive blog. To find out more, go to www.netspy.com slash agent of influence. This is an episode in a series of interviews with industry leaders and security gurus, and I'm happy to have with me today, Bob Bigman. Hi, Bob. Hi, good morning, or good afternoon, I guess. <laughs> it's a good afternoon for me. It's a good afternoon. So Bob retired from the Central Intelligence Agency, commonly known as the CIA, after serving a distinguished tenure of 30 years. Bob is recognized as a pioneer in the field of classified information protection and has developed technical measures and procedures to manage the nation's most sensitive secrets. He's truly considered a trailblazer, especially given his contributions to developing security measures for government computers well before the commercial industry found the internet. Bob spends the last 15 years of his tenure as the agency's chief information security officer. For anyone looking for guidance on cryptography, information security policy and processes, standards and requirements, security testing, and network defense and response, Bob is the go-to person. Bob is now an independent consultant working with the US and foreign governments and also some of the top Fortune 50 companies in helping them build both a proactive cybersecurity program and successfully resist attacks from the most sophisticated attackers. Bob has recently been spending a lot of his time studying history, mostly U.S. history and the Civil War. He also loves to cook, travel, and spend time with his family, which includes two cats. So, Bob, I usually like to start by asking my guests this question. How did you get started with security? Well, that, that was a great introduction. Thanks, Mom. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I began my career 30 years ago uh, at the agency, actually now 36 years ago, uh, they were looking for people to work at the time in what was called the tape center. Uh, they used to have data stored on these individual large tapes. And uh, they were looking for people who could work at overtime, actually. And uh, what they were doing was sanitizing these tapes. I won't say exactly how they were doing it, but we were sanitizing tapes so we could reuse them. And I said, yeah, I'll find, you know, I'll raise my hand. I went in. Uh, and I learned about you know how to sanitize tapes. I had no idea what was on the tapes. I couldn't see the data on there. <laughs> um, <laughs> so uh, I was I was working with the tapes, and they said, you know, I talk, got to meet a group of other people who were working on the systems at the time. These were IBM uh, mainframe computers running operating systems called IBM 370, uh, MVS, and then later uh, VM. And, uh, you know, basically from that day on, you know, I, I started learning more about what they did. And um, when a job came open and working uh, in the computer center, um, I started doing that next. Uh, and then uh, I saw an opening for a job to uh, work in something called RACF. Now, you probably never heard of uh, RACF, but, or have you? I have not. So they have not. Please, okay. yeah. please elaborate. So I'm sure was, most of our uh, audience haven't either. Uh, yeah, so RACF was actually a, one of the first security products for mainframe computer systems. It was an IBM product used to protect their data sets on their uh, MVS and later VM uh, file systems. And you had to write rules uh, in this bizarre type of syntax. Um, 
and understand how to write. So I went and I learned how to understand the roles. And I fell in love uh, with cybersecurity uh, and never left it uh, and worked uh, all 30 years there at CIA in various cybersecurity assignments and um, policy, cryptography, technology, operations support. Uh, and then, as you mentioned, lastly, the last 15 years of my career uh, was spent as the, um, as the agency CISO. That's fantastic. Um, you know, there's so much I'm sure that you cannot share with us, given the sensitive nature of the, of the work you've done. But what I would love to understand from you is, you know, you spent 15 years as the CISO. How do you even get started? And how do you even look at things in an organization as diverse as the CIA, especially containing so much sensitive information? You know, as a CISO, how do you get started? What do you do? What does the role of CISO really mean to an organization like the CIA? Well, in some ways, you know, believe it or not, it is obviously more complicated than uh, other organizations, government agencies, or private corporations. But in some ways, it's also easier. Um, unlike most of the companies I work with and most other organizations, security is uh, pervasive in the thinking uh, of the agency. Everything we do, we think about security first. Security is integral to, you know, frankly, everyone's thinking. I always like to say that I was the CISO for thousands of CISOs. <laughs> everyone, everyone, had a business, everyone had an idea about how to do my job better. Uh, and for some, I didn't do it well enough. And for some, I didn't do enough of it. And for some, I did it too much. Uh, so there, I had a lot of help. Uh, sometimes wanted, sometimes not so much. Um, so on the one on the one hand, you know, being the CISO uh, was a little easier in that, you know, we knew we had a population who was um, mostly broadly based, uh, very uh, receptive to our message, and uh, security was, as I said, rolled into all our operations, all our thinking, all our planning. Um, so on the one level. Uh, all we had to do, I shouldn't say all, but the primary responsibility was telling people what to do, right? Telling them the standards, the policies, the requirements, what were their responsibilities, who had to do what. So a lot of it was uh, the not-too-sexy part of cyber, which is writing down the policies, the standards, so focus the guidelines. On, focus on governance, um, mostly. Exactly. Uh, governance was our primary responsibility and making sure that every system we developed, every system we operated met, you know, very, very high levels of security. Uh, and of course, that included all the aspects of it, you know, requirements, planning, integration, testing, approval, the standard uh, way you deliver systems. Uh, but, uh, you know, we, we, we were super serious about it. I mean, as I said, uh, it was it was critical because we we couldn't make uh, a mistake. Um, so that was the easy part. The hard part was the risk were high, right? You know, if you made a mistake, uh, and I'll be honest with you, I can't describe it, but mistakes were made in judgment, in operations, in support, in the use of certain technologies. Um, that you were able to recover from the mistakes, you know, understand, uh, learn from them. Uh, and move on. You know, obviously, no one's perfect, and as you know, in the industry, none of our IT systems are even remotely secure. So we had to deal with that issue. Um, so you know, every system delivered, every system deployed was a collection of uh, you know technology, but a lot of planning and a lot of thinking about how best to use it and what things we need to do to uh, to lower our profile, lower our risk. 
Um, so I think the, the so, role probably requires you to first accept the fact that you are probably going to make mistakes. Not everything is going to be perfectly secure because that does not exist. And also the thing that yeah. I find very interesting is I think it's just easier to break things than to actually architect and build things to be resistant to all types of attacks. So that kind of leaves you open to this uh, threat landscape that uh, is almost always going to win. It's just a matter of how far ahead of the game can you stay at any given time. Yeah, and that was not uh, exactly, and that was not always, in fact, it was frequently not a technology decision. Mm -hmm. It was a um, operational use decision. You know, there are certain things you would accept risk on operationally, and there was certain risks you just didn't uh, accept any risk on. And, you know, the day the job was a large part of, you know, trying to help senior managers understand what that risk was and make, uh, you know, cogent uh, decisions about about cyber risk. So how would you say the the CISO role itself evolved from when you started 15 years ago to what it is today? So uh, interesting, you know, I would say uh, 15 years ago, no one really understood the role, knew what to do with the CISO. There was a government requirement came out from OMB. It said, you know, there's this new thing called Chief Information Security Officers. No, every government agency used to have one. So CIA said, all right. Uh, I wasn't the first. There was uh, a predecessor. Uh, and then I uh, uh, got the job. Uh, but it was very clear at that point. They didn't really know, you know, what role the CISO played. Um, we were an element in the um, in the cyber, in the, excuse me, in the overall security program at the agency, um, there was the, the classic argument between, well, do I report to the CIO? Do I report to the chief of security? We did all through all that. Um, so initially, it was a little, you know, basically finding it myself and determining what the role would be, um, how I could have the greatest influence and impact on the agency. Um, and then the organization grew and learned itself what it needed the CISO to do, right? So as it uh, grew and began to use things like the internet more broadly and began to take on what I'll consider perhaps more risky technology choices, more risky operational choices, you know, they said, well, who, you know, who do we got to go to to find out what the risk is? Well, we got this, this guy called the CISO. <laughs> so uh, let's get him involved. So um, it's... I wouldn't say transition, but it became an interesting mix of uh, involvement in our own IT life, uh, our administrative IT, analytical IT, but also became more involved in operational use of IT technologies in our in our business purposes, um, and even more involved later on towards the end of my a career there uh, in strategic planning, right, looking out into the future as to where we were going and what types of cybersecurity uh, skills people we would need. Um, and technology. Um, we were frequently pushing, as they say, pushing the envelope in with our vendor community, trying to get you know better better capabilities. Yeah, so I, it's safe to say that you were crucial in defining the role of CISO the way it is today, uh, and in the industry, and of course within the CIA as well. You got the opportunity to really define what the role needs to do. And then, of course, it evolved over time. So the organization figured out what they want um, you to do within that role. 
what are, in your opinion, some of the biggest challenges that CISOs today face in all of these other organizations outside of the government um, where they take on this role, which tends to be very nebulous? Yeah, yeah. So it's it's very difficult. In fact, I think the role of the CISO in private industry, especially in large organizations, is more difficult than um, the role I had at the agency. Where, as I said, I had uh, thousands of CISOs <laughs> to manage. Um, the problem in private industries I see that makes the CISO's life most challenging is they don't do IT very well. And you know, I've never found this is a a, a maxim that I always tell people that if an organization doesn't do IT well, they're not going to do IT security well. I've never seen one where if they do IT poorly, they do IT security well. That It doesn't work that way. And most of them, frankly, uh, don't do IT very well. What I mean by that is they've got no central planning, no central governance, no focus, no strategy. Everyone in the business units is out kind of building their own thing, making their own deals, going to their own cloud provider, building their own systems, you know, making connections with their own vendors. Um, it's it's a free-for-all. And here are the poor CISOs trying to keep a track and keep management and keep control from a security perspective of all this constant noise and all this constant uh, change um, going on in the environment. Uh, which, as they say, has to work at the pace of business, right? Because they're always looking for opportunities to um, improve the bottom line. And that forces them, you know, really, uh, it, it's counterintuitive, but it forces them away from good planning and good strategy towards running after the next big opportunity. And whether the CISO is there or not there, it doesn't matter. They're going, they're going anyways, right? They're going to go build the app. They're going to go uh, deploy the application. They're going to go make the deal with the par- third-party vendor. Whether the, whether the CISO is with them or not with them, because there's no penalty, <laughs> um, you know, for not having the CISO. So, so I, I, you know, I, I try to help these CISOs in, in private industry, <clears throat> and uh, this this is probably their biggest challenge. So would you, would you say that the way the role is today and all the peripheral challenges surrounding them, uh, it doesn't allow them to ever be in a state of, proactivity where they're proactively doing things they're always being reactive yeah i'd say it's probably 80 20 reactive um even in the ones i think that are a little bit better and a little bit more centrally managed where there's a it portfolio of of uh, known projects and and processes um it's a little better but you still have these this is where the term shadow it came up Mm -hmm. right and ghost it uh, they're still at risk because of the way you know most businesses conduct themselves um, with their uh, with their IT, and the cloud hasn't helped. You know most of these companies have got you know three, four, five different cloud projects going on at the same time across their company. Um, so it, it, as I said, it makes life very difficult. And yes, the bulk of their time is is very reactive. Yeah, so that's so true. We we notice that as well with our customer base that we are working with all the time. As a as a seasoned veteran in this space, uh, if you had to give advice to the existing CISOs out there on certain things to do to make them more successful, uh, what would those like top two or three things be? 
So the first one, uh, they're not really technology answers. Uh, The first one is to try to instill some degree, some sense of uh, responsibility in your IT organization for cybersecurity, right? Um, I was working with a company recently where we got agreement finally for all the senior IT managers of uh, innovation, digital innovation, um, application development, system deployment, that each one of them with their performance appraisal will have a rating on how well they implement cybersecurity policy and support the cybersecurity program. And it will be the CISO who writes that um, that review. Um, and we did that because of the way the agent, the company organization was frankly continually disregarding <laughs> uh, cybersecurity policy and standards. They were just, you know, just, just, just disregarding, you know, yeah, I know what I'm supposed to do, but I'm not going to do it. And I said, well, we got to fix that problem first. And we got the approval of the senior person in the, um, one of the board members actually to make that change. And now guess what? You're seeing a change. Um, so you got to spend time and I hope it doesn't have to come to, you know, putting a performance standard in, but you really need to make um, a, a part for cybersecurity in the governance life. Uh, and that's all about IT, right? It's about IT management. It's not about cybersecurity. Um, you know, the second one I would say is don't focus on compliance. I know that's hard, especially in the financial financial customers who have to, you know, uh, comply with various regulations. But when you're chasing the, you know, compliance checklist, you're usually not focusing on the um, sophisticated APT groups. And too often when I go into organizations and find out what they're doing, is they're working on a variety of cybersecurity things, but they're mostly focused because an auditor came down to their office and said, hey, you know, work on whitelisting. No, no, no. Next month they come by and say, oh, no, no. This month I want you to work on um, privilege access management. And they've got this collection of odd things, but what they're not focusing on is the real risk. And the real risk is sitting in uh, Moscow and St. Petersburg uh, coming up with better um, uh, attack uh, payloads and uh, techniques. That, that's what they need to be focusing on um, much more than they focus on uh, today. That's really helpful and such great insight to have. So speaking of the financial services sector, uh, my career, I had the you know, good fortune of working with some of the largest banks in the U.S. and helping them with specifically with their application security efforts. You've had a lot more exposure to the financial services sector than I have. Uh, how would you say that the threats to the financial services organizations, how have they evolved um, over your tenure uh, and career in security? Yeah, so uh, with all my clients, uh, I see the the financials are really the um, test bed for many of the more sophisticated, uh, not necessarily zero day, but some of the more uh, sophisticated APTs that uh, they try out, um, you know, what I'll call better uh, obscuring and hiding and um, just various memory exploitation uh, attempts that uh, you may not have seen before or may not have exactly seen implemented that way. But I've found that the financials have now become like the testing ground Mm -hmm. uh, because they like to, you know, they're a great target and they're a great place to, you know, as Willie Sutton said, that's where the money's Mm -hmm. at. 
So this is why the um, sophisticated hacker groups will go after them, uh, and they want to get admin accounts. And what they do is they're, you know, they try, you know, different techniques, and you see these largely involving either older or known um, uh, payloads like a motet, which they'll just basically take and edit and make changes based on either their own cyber intel or just what they think uh, can be exploitable on that, on that network. And they really do test uh, you know, both the perimeter and the network defenses of these organizations much more than with my other customers, including government uh, customers. Um, I don't see as high a level of um, you know, payload obfuscation um, and signature and you know command and control uh, uh, you know locate hide, hiding DNS information. It tends to be much much more um, uh, sophisticated. And as I said, most of it seems to be uh, using the financials as kind of the test bed. It's uh, from my experience. It's also because the financial services tend to be so external facing. You know, they're so customer facing, and, yes, and they they want right. to. Uh, make it as simple and quick as possible for their customers to get a hold of them and interact with them. But in turn, they're also exposing themselves to the attackers that are out there. Yep. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, that's that's really insightful. And uh, it's it definitely resonates with our experience as well. So, well, let's uh, switch tracks a little bit because I love getting to know our guests more at the personal level too. Sure. So I know that you love to cook. So what would you say is your favorite dish yeah. or favorite recipe that you like making or m most people like to eat that you make? Well, uh, I don't get to do it as much as I used to, but I love to cook Persian food. <laughs> uh, I fell in love <laughs> with Persian food many years ago. I've never been to, I've never been to Iran, but um, uh, I love Persian food. Where I live in uh, D.C., we have a lot of good Persian restaurants. Mm -hmm. So they're they're somewhat they're somewhat complicated, but uh, I like to make um, you know you know uh, food like fezzedin, which is a sweet chicken dish. Mm -hmm. um, I love their their poultry and chicken dishes um, and soups. And um, when I get time, that's 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 my favorite. I wish I had more time to do that, but I enjoy uh, Middle Eastern and specifically um, uh, Persian. That's you're making me hungry already just thinking about it. But one of my <laughs> one of my favorite restaurants when I was in college, I went to uh, University of Waterloo in Canada. We did not. It was a very small town. Mm -hmm. You don't really have a lot of diversity. But we had this one Persian restaurant, and they had these uh, grilled chicken kebabs that I used to devour oh, yes. once a week. That was my go-to place once a week. So I'm getting very nostalgic, and I'm getting very hungry at the same time. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Yep, the the joji, the chicken, yes. the uh, the hens on the skewers are just uh, tremendous. Yes, that's what they were called. Um, so another another yep. fun fact when we last spoke uh, is that uh, you are a history buff, and in particular about you know focused on U.S. history, Civil War, and British history. So, is there anything that you have learned or? discovered recently that most people wouldn't know about the Civil War or, or U.S. history that you think uh, you'd like to share with our audience? Uh, well, uh, this did you ever hear of Wilmer McClain? I have not. <laughs> okay, so when you're done, you can uh, Google him for more information. But so 
I guess this is one of the, there aren't too many fun facts in the Civil War. There was nothing really fun about it. But one of the interesting facts was this fellow named Wilbur McLean, who um, lived, uh, actually not too far from me, but uh, lived over in Virginia in an area called Bull Run. And at the beginning of the war, uh, he had a, a business and a small farm uh, over in Bull Run, uh, which was the site of the very first battle, was basically his front yard. <laughs> okay. Um, in which he basically uh, you know, allowed some of the uh, people to come down, set up their little picnic bags, to come, come watch the battle. Of course, when the uh, northern forces retreated, they retreated right back through his front yard. <laughs> he, he decided that was too much risk for him and his family to take. So uh, he decided to move 125 miles uh, southwest into Virginia into a city called Appomattox. <laughs> and it was his house that uh, Grant and Lee signed the armistice and the uh, Articles of Surrender that ended the Civil War. So as Wilmer liked hmm. to say, the um, Civil War began in my front yard and ended on my porch. <laughs> that is that is such a unique and, and interesting fact about the Civil War. I had no idea. I'm looking him up right now as we speak. Yeah, no, no. Uh, it's so interesting. It says he was a wholesale grocer. So he was he had a grocery business. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, he had, that's right. Yeah, he had a grocery business. Uh, in in, in uh, Manassas, in Bull Run. it's a, it yes, says Manassas right. here. Manassas, yeah, yeah, that's that's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, Manassas. Well, Bull Run actually runs through the what we call the city of uh, Manassas, mm-hmm. and there's Bull Run Creek there, um, and that's where his uh, that's where his farm was. So he thought he was getting 125 miles away from the action. <laughs> Little did he know, four years later, they would be setting the armistice on his mm-hmm. porch, so uh, or in, in his pantry area. So whatever. So uh, I thought that was an interesting fact. And the other, I, what else? Well, no, that's such an interesting tidbit. I think going forward, I'm going to ask all my guests to come with some type of trivia or interesting fact ready to share with the audience. <laughs> Uh, the other thing well, I saw more recently, oh, I had heard about, you know, some, to show you that some of the uh, fighting and work in uh, the Civil War was very, very, you know, close uh, quarters where, you know, you, you really were, you know, just feet away. Um, and often the bullets would hit each other. <laughs> <laughs> but I never, but I never saw, I never saw a... Um, and they basically fuse once they hit, you know, because they were hot. Uh, most of them would blister and break, but you could actually, there were supposedly, you know, examples. I never see, had seen one. I saw pictures of them. I have seen, a couple years I've ago, seen pictures of that, War. too. Uh, yeah. Recently, actually, somewhere where they had these two bullets okay. that just went, one went through the other one, um, and they were kind of stuck in, yeah. in, a, in an X formation, I think. Yeah, I, I had never thought I was at uh, a museum in Richmond, and um, actually there there it was a, a northern bullet going one direction and <laughs> southern and a southern uh, battle ball going in the other direction hit, and there they were fused mm-hmm. together. So and so there's a couple of civil war. And I'm facts. also assuming the weapons were probably not powerful enough because I don't think that can happen today. I think today that everything would just disintegrate if it collided. Well, because of velocity, right? Because speed and velocity, most weapons are fired over a long distance, so they're going to change. The chance that they're going to hit each mm-hmm. other is really, really uh, 
Yeah, small. Yeah, exactly. Well, um, one last question for you. Um, I did. I, I did oh, okay. hear about your two cats, and I recently adopted two kittens. They are four months old, and I'm oh. loving having them at home during this period of quarantine. So, I would love to hear about hear from you about your cats. Well, uh, ours are both now what thirteen years old. We got them uh, as rescue kits uh, kittens uh, from the local shelter. Uh, they were not part of the same uh, okay. litter. Uh, but they act like they act. They think they're sisters, and uh, and they are. They're very much. They you know they they a little bit independent, but um, you know they have their order about how they do things and who's the more dominant cat. You'll learn all about this when you see your cats uh, interact. Uh, still at 13 years old, they still play with each other. What they two different personalities. One's um, literally afraid of its own shadow, <laughs> not just. <laughs> if, if it walks and sees its shadow, it'll stop and paw at it. So uh, it's a little scared. Um, and the other one's you know, extremely outgoing. Uh, I've, we've had cats all our lives, and we just love them. Um, and, yeah, they're a great addition to the house. Um, and, uh, yeah, they're just, they're, as, as you'll find out, they're, they become part of your family very, very quickly. I've already started and, to um, see the personality difference that you speak about. Uh, one of them is very yeah. adventurous, gets into everything and goes everywhere. The other one is much more cautious, uh, you know, will take walks mm-hmm. slower, doesn't run around. Uh, I also have a, a Maltese that's nine years old. So, so oh, he's wow. also uh, he's oh, a little wow. bigger than them, but they'll be the same size when they're fully grown. And um, the one that's more adventurous on day one was sitting on his back and, you know, cuddling up with him in his bed and stuff like that, while the other one was always staying about three or four feet away from him in the beginning. But now they've all become friends. Yeah, I mean, they they are, in one way, you know, they're uh, very affectionate, uh, but they are cats. <laughs> <laughs> and they do, they, they do sometimes just stand at the other end of the room or table and give you that look like, who are you? <laughs> and leave me alone. Uh, then other times they come up and they rub up next to you and they want uh, your attention. Um, they're an uh, interesting, interesting animal. I've had them all my life and I still don't fully understand, you know, what they're about. Well, yeah, I think that's <laughs> part of the joys of uh, pet ownership. I think it's always yeah. different, and everyone's yeah. experience is uh, different. Dogs are all not. All dogs are the same, <laughs> from my perspective. Yeah, they all to me they all act the same. They're all too needy. They're all you know. Uh, cats, you're still, you're still, you know, 13 years later, looking at this animal, figuring out what, what are you really mm-hmm. about? So that's part of the yeah, mystery. I think I it's like. the predictability of dogs versus the unpredictability of the cats that, that I find, I find yeah, very interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Bob, thank you so much for absolutely. your time. This has been a pleasure and we really sure. appreciate having you. And um, I hope to chat with you again real soon. Excellent. Thank you very much. This has been an Agent of Influence podcast with Nabil Hannan. Portions of this interview can be found in print on the NetSpy Executive blog. And please subscribe for future episodes of Agent of Influence at www.netspy.com slash agent of influence.